0: Let's go now to the Old Testament reading, which is from the book of Exodus, chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. This will help to set the stage for the sermon text today, which is Revelation 9, verses 1 through 12. Exodus 10, verses 1 through 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandson how... I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. We are here in the midst of the story of the ten plagues poured upon the Egyptians again. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall you let this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in all the land, all that, is, that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me so he went out from pharaoh and pleaded with the lord and the lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and drove them into the red sea not a single locust was left in all the country of egypt but the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of israel go let us turn over now to revelation chapter 9 verses 1 through 12 revelation 9 verses 1 through 12 And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their foreheads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So far God's word has been read. May he also bless the preaching of it as we continue on today. I want to begin by stating in the most direct way the meaning of this passage and then afterwards I'll move carefully through the text verse by verse in order to uh, demonstrate the validity of the interpretation that I give. Uh, The vision that was shown to John when the fifth of seven trumpets was blown symbolizes this truth. Satan, that ancient serpent and fallen angel, was barred from heaven And cast down to earth when Christ won the decisive victory over him through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Did you hear what I've just said? Satan was barred from heaven. And cast down to earth when Christ won the decisive victory over him through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Satan was defeated then in a most decisive way. And one of the effects of Christ's victory was that Satan was barred from heaven as the accuser of the brethren. And he was restricted to the earth. And he was bound. But to say that he was bound does not mean that he is now powerless in every respect Or that he is inactive altogether. But that such a decisive victory was won over him through the cross of Christ. That whatever he does, he does only by way of permission. God and Christ are sovereign over the evil one. This has always been the case. But from the time of the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand. The powers of the evil one are greatly limited in some ways. Satan is on a shorter leash today than in the days prior to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And it is Christ who holds that leash. The evil one knows that his days are numbered. When he is permitted to act, he acts therefore with great ferocity. That seems to me to be the point of this vision. Satan is a wicked and cruel master. He torments with spiritual and psychological torment all who belong to him. That is all who do not have the seal of God upon them, but who have taken instead his mark. The reward that they receive, those who do not have God's seal, but have taken Satan's mark. The reward that they receive for their fidelity to him is not life, but death. Not peace, but turmoil. These torments are poured out upon the ungodly by his demons, whom he is king over. Some of you, I know it is true, have lived for a time... Under the torments of this wicked master. Some of you are living under his torments even now as you walk, not according to Christ, but according to the evil one. You know what it is to be stung by his minions, even to the point that you long for death, but to have death flee from you. This passage ought to move the Christian to follow Christ all the more closely, to be true to him as Lord, to be his slave, knowing that his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Matthew 11.30 To have Christ as Lord is to have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as Lord. But to have the evil one as Lord will bring all manner of torment upon your soul. This is the meaning of the vision shown to John when the fifth of seven trumpets uh, was blown. I need to demonstrate it, don't I? And uh, that I will try to do in this sermon Uh, Brothers and sisters, remember that when the first four trumpets were blown, judgments were poured out upon the created world. When the first trumpet was blown, John saw hail and fire and blood cast upon the land. When the second trumpet was blown, he saw something like a burning mountain cast into the sea. When the third trumpet was blown, he saw a great star burning like a torch fall upon the rivers and springs. And when the fourth trumpet was blown, the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. In each instance, our minds are directed back to the Old Testament and particularly to the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians. How did God judge the Egyptians except affecting the realm in which they lived? The creation was judged partly because they made the creation into God, into God's. Uh, they were idolaters worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Therefore the creation was judged. The same thing is portrayed in the pouring out of the first four. Uh, the, the judgments poured out when the first four trumpets were blown. The created realm is affected there uh, when these trumpets are blown. And remember that uh, though our minds are to go back to the Exodus event. We see that the Exodus e- event and the plagues are brought over into the New Testament. Not unchanged but rather changed. Things are both at once Um, Universalized and also restrained and restricted. Uh, Notice, for example, that it was not just the land of Egypt that was affected when these trumpets were blown, but the whole earth. But things are restricted, and that only a third of the mentioned realms are said to be affected. This we covered last week. The meaning of the first four trumpets is this then God will, in the time between Christ's first and second comings, pour out. Partial and perpetual judgments upon the earth, disrupting the stability of life on this planet as a demonstration to the unbelieving and idolatrous world that they are not right with God. These trumpets function as a kind of warning then uh, to the idolaters that they are not right with God but must repent because these are but partial and perpetual judgments. The final judgment is on its way. The trumpet cycle functions like the trumpets that were blown at Jericho before that city fell. Uh, We should remember, though, that God, while pouring out partial and perpetual judgments upon the idolatrous, can and will preserve his people. He will preserve his people, just as as he did in the Exodus event and just as he did at Jericho. He will preserve his people. Nations will rise and fall. There will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. They will trouble us, but by the grace of God, these phenomena will be restrained. The end is not yet. These are but the beginning of birth pains. The people of God are to persevere. Do you remember all of that from last week? But notice that the last three trumpets are set off from the first four. There is an intensification in the last three trumpets. Look at 8.13. I know it is not a part of the sermon text for today, but it's an important verse to remember. This is what was seen by John in between the pouring out of the first four trumpets and what was seen when the fifth trumpet was was blown. Then I looked, and I heard an e- an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, saying this, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So there is a warning here that, though what has just been described is indeed... The judgment of God, what is about to be described, is exceptionally intense. Uh, Eagles and vultures symbolize the judgment of God in the Bible. They are called to gorge themselves upon the flesh of the fallen who fall under God's judgment. Uh, Ezekiel 39, 1-5 uses this imagery. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give... You to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured you shall fall in the open field for I have spoken declares the Lord God this imagery is just common throughout the scriptures that um, these birds of prey or these vultures are always associated with God pouring out judgment upon people Uh, you know the imagery don't you Uh, I think we've even been outside hiking before and you see a a, a large uh, flock of vultures circling around you know that something has died Something has died. And in the scriptures, the eagles or the vultures are used uh, to to symbolize uh, God's judgment upon people. Here an eagle is seen by John flying overhead and crying out with three woes. The last of the seven trumpets will be called woes, for they are more more intense than the first four. And here is what we read. When the fifth angel blew his trumpet in verse 1, John saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. This star, it becomes clear, represents Satan. He is, in verse 11, said to be the king over the demonic hordes that will proceed from the bottomless pit. His name in verse 11 is said to be Ab- Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. Abaddon means destruction, Apollyon means destroyer. Notice that in this vision, John does not say that he saw Satan fall. That is not included within this vision. It does not say that he saw this star fall, but rather that he saw him already fallen. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Uh, The verb fallen is in the perfect tense, which is used in the Greek to refer to a completed action that occurred in the past, but produces a state of being that exists in the present from the writer's perspective. So John, when he sees this vision, he sees not Satan falling, but rather Satan already fallen, already having been barred from heaven and bound. Uh, The casting down of Satan from heaven to earth will be portrayed in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12, when the book of Revelation recapitulates again. Uh, That's when we will see a vision of Satan actually falling in, in, in that process. Turn there with me. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. There we read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting, it's the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And listen to this, And there was no longer any place for him, them in heaven. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When did this happen? the text is clear, and I will demonstrate it when we come to it in the series, that this happened at Christ's first coming, when he ushered in his kingdom, when he began to rule and reign at God's right hand. Satan was cast out of heaven to earth where he was thus bound. He no longer has the freedom to accuse the brethren in heaven. Jesus referred to the casting down of Satan from heaven to earth in his earthly ministry. In Luke ten seventeen through 20 we read this the 72 returned with joy saying lord even the demons are subject to us in your name do you remember the story he sent them out and they returned and they were excited because they had victory even over the demons themselves and he said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven behold i have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions do you hear the language here Making connections as I I can't make them all. You have to make them yourself. But do you you hear the language here? Um, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Uh, The disciples of Jesus rejoiced that they had authority over the demonic in Christ's name, and Jesus confirmed their success by saying, I saw, other translations say, I was watching or I beheld, which brings out the emphasis of the imperfect tense a little more, I think. I saw or was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The disciples of Christ were beginning to enjoy the victory of Christ over the evil one, even in the days of his earthly ministry, as the kingdom of heaven was intruding upon the earth. They were beginning to enjoy uh, Christ's victory over the evil one, even before he died and rose again. Because, after all, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is at hand. When was that announced? By John the Baptist at the beginning of Christ's ministry. The disciples began to experience this power, and Christ confirmed, Indeed, I saw Satan fall. I beheld Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In John twelve thirty-one through 32 we find these words on Jesus' lips as he speaks of the effect of his death. Here is what he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is going to happen now. The ruler of this world is going to be cast out. Now, the death of Christ would accomplish among other things the casting out of Satan who is the ruler of this world. Matthew 12:28 through 29 communicates a similar concept. Christ here speaks of the binding of Satan. He replied to the accusations of his opponents that he was casting out Demons by the power of Satan. Do you remember that accusation here? That the Jews are are observing, the non-believing Jews are observing everything that Christ is doing on earth. They they come to the point where they can no longer deny that He is really working miracles. They can't deny that it's happening right before their eyes. They have to give an answer to it. How can He do it? And eventually, they are pressed to, to 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 this extreme to say the only thing we can say is that He's doing it by the power of Satan. Right. He must be doing it by the power of Satan. And here is how Christ replied, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is how he reasons. And in verse 28 he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom, notice the connection between kingdom and all of this authority that Christ now has over the demonic. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is advancing. It is intruding into this world. And one of the first things I must do then is bind the strong man who has authority in this place. And that is what I have come to do. I'm binding the evil one and I'm demonstrating it before your very eyes in the casting out of demons and in the performance of these miracles. Satan is bound people now is bound. It is stated directly and clearly throughout the New Testament. Something happened at Christ's first coming through his life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand where Satan is on a shorter leash than he used to be. He is restrained in some ways that he was not restrained before. Uh, let, Let that sink into your minds. It is clearly stated here. Indeed, this is what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. He has defeated the evil one so that he is Barred from heaven. He is bound from deceiving the nations, Revelation 20, so that he might plunder the evil one's house through the advancement of the kingdom of God by making the the making of disciples to the ends of the earth. Uh, You might be thinking to yourself, but wasn't Satan cast from heaven the moment he fell? Wasn't he cast from heaven the moment that he fell when he decided to rebel against God? And the answer is not completely. He had some access to the heavenly realm for a time. Do you remember the story of Job? Do you remember that book? What does that book do except reveal to us some of the secret things that go on in the heavenly realm that are hidden from our eyes in regard particularly to uh, the troubles we experience on earth? Uh, The book begins with a description of Job as a righteous man, uh, but the focus quickly turns to the accusations that Satan was bringing against him to God. Job 1, 6-12, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. There's something happening in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm. Uh, these spirits are accountable to God they come to present themselves before God Satan is amongst them the Lord said to Satan from where have you come Satan answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it and the Lord said to Satan notice that it is the Lord who brings up Job and not Satan at first have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil then Satan answered the Lord and and said does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And he had this freedom, this permission to do harm to Job, though he was not allowed to take Job's Life. So the point that I am making here for the purpose of the sermon today is that Satan, after his fall, was permitted to come before God in heaven. And what did he do when he got there? He brought accusation against God's elect. He brought accusation against God's elect. The same thing can be observed in Zechariah 3.1. Zechariah saw a heavenly vision where he was shown and I quote Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him and the Lord said to Satan the Lord rebuke you O Satan the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you is not this a brand plucked from the fire in other words I'm not accepting your accusations against Joshua the high priest true he's filthy But I have made him clean. If you read the context that is what is said here. But again what was Satan doing? Accusing. Bringing accusation against Joshua. And do you remember what Christ said to Peter. As he warned him that he would deny him three times. Simon, Simon. Behold Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again. When you have repented. Strengthen your brothers. So evidently. Even in this time immediately before the, the death of Christ, Satan is still there in the heavenly realm accusing God's elect, requesting that Satan uh, that, that God uh, give Peter to, to him so that he might sift him as wheat. But even here we see that Christ has begun to intercede, even for Peter, uh, in that time before Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. When the scriptures refer to Satan being cast out of, or barred from heaven at Christ's first coming, this, everything I have just described to you, is what stands behind that notion. He, in this new covenant era, no longer has access to God to accuse the elect, for the work of Christ has been finished. It has been accomplished. It is in the Revelation 12 passage that I read earlier that this is made so clear Uh, The heavenly announcement was this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. When did that happen, brothers and sisters? Please do not say it will happen at the second coming of Christ. If you say that, I would say go back and try reading the New Testament again. It happened at the first coming of Christ happened at the first coming of Christ. Of course, we await the consummation of these things, but the kingdom of heaven was said to be then at hand. Christ in his earthly ministry demonstrated power over Satan before the disciples' very eyes, and we have record of it in the New Testament. It happened then. Satan was cast out. So when an all-millennialist such as myself says something like, Satan was bound at Christ's first coming or Satan was barred from heaven at Christ's first coming, or Satan was defeated at Christ's first coming. We do not mean to say that he is powerless in every respect, or that he is inactive altogether, as if we do not believe in the spiritual battle anymore, or Satan's activities. That's not what we're saying. Instead, what we are saying is that he is indeed active, he has power, he is incredibly ferocious but he is ferocious because his time is short he is on a short leash and when we say that he is bound we are saying that we that he is bound from being able to do particular things one of them being bringing accusation against god's elect and the heavenly realm the other thing being among probably other things as well his ability to keep the nations in darkness That he had the power to do in the Old Covenant, did he not? Where was the kingdom of God confined to? Israel. But when the New Covenant is ushered in, the commission to Christ's disciples is go and make disciples of all nations. Why? How are they going to be able to do that? Don't forget what was stated just before it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, all authority in heaven and on earth. See, a victory has been won in the heavenly realm. And it has had an effect upon even what Satan himself is able to do. He cannot keep the nations in darkness any longer, nor can he bring accusations against God's elect. Notice at the end of this verse, verse 1, that John saw this fallen star who represents Satan being given... The key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now the bottomless pit, or the abyss, is the realm of, 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 of the demons over which Satan rules. Revelation 20 verses one through3 says that Satan is bound there. It is from the bottomless pit that the beasts will arise." Revelation 11:7 says, "And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them." Listen also to Revelation 17:8: "The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Uh, the image is that of Satan doing his destructive work on the earth from this bottomless pit or abyss abyss as he sends forth his emissaries from there. That is the, the image that should come to mind. Uh, remember that John saw uh, this fallen star who represents Satan being given. The keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Who gave him the keys, by the way? Have you ever asked that question? Who gave the keys to him? Christ did. Remember that Christ is the one who by his death and resurrection has the keys of death and Hades, Revelation 1, 17 through 18. It's already been stated in the book of Revelation here. It is God and Christ who have the keys but they are given to Abaddon who is also called Apollyon for a purpose. To quote G.K. Beale, the meaning is this, neither Satan nor his evil servants can any longer unleash the forces of hell on earth unless they are given power to do so by the resurrected Christ. Christ is sovereign over the evil one. Whatever he does, he does by way of permission, by way of permission he is bound Uh, brothers and sisters, Satan has surely been bound, he is certainly restrained praise be to God, we should take comfort in this, but this does not mean that he is inactive, he is king of the abyss, verse 11 and he is permitted by God to release destruction upon the earth from the abyss, but in a limited and restrained way that is what this passage teaches us I want you to look at verse 2 and use your imagination as we read. You need to use your imagination whenever we're reading the book of Revelation. Don't you try to picture what it was that John saw in these heavenly visions. The star fallen from heaven whose name is Abaddon and Apollyon opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. I mean it's a really ominous picture isn't it? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen something burning that is producing just billowing smoke dark billowing smoke. I think when those Fuel tankers crash on the freeway from time to time or whatever. It produces this kind of image, you know, where it's just just a ferocious scene, right? Uh, that is what John saw. But notice that this is not merely smoke, verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. The eighth of the ten plagues should come to mind, which we read earlier. Remember that God sent swarms of locusts upon the Egyptians as a judgment upon them. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees and all, the hail, all that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. This is a historical description of what happened to the Egyptians. Can you picture that too? Egypt probably being very lush and very green especially near to the Nile River. All of a sudden these swarms of locusts come through. They're so thick that they blot out the sun and they devour everything to where there's nothing green left. It must have been such a a troubling sight for the Egyptians. Notice in Revelation that these are not literal locusts who literally consume literal plants Indeed, these locusts were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They are not coming to devour plants, but really they are going to have an effect upon individual people, particularly those who do not have the seal of God upon them. Their work is limited. Notice that. They are constrained. Their work is limited. They do not have the freedom to harm people indiscriminately, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Who limits their work, by the way? Christ does. God does. He limits them. Uh, Who are these, the ones who do not have the seal of God upon their forehead, except all who do not belong to Christ. We have already heard a description of those who do belong to Christ with the sealing of the 144,000 earlier in the book of Revelation. Also notice that these locusts cannot touch God's people, but only the idolaters who have uh, not the seal of God, but the mark of the beast. We will come eventually to the mark of the beast. I'm now amused, by the way, that the dispensationalists try to guess what the mark of the beast will be, you know. Will it be a tattoo? Will it be a new payment system that Visa comes up with where you'll have a chip embedded in your hand? Um, I don't know. It just gets weird, and it always changes with the times as technology advances. It's none of that. To have Christ's seal upon you means that you belong to who? To Christ. Do you see the seal? You do not see it. It's not a literal seal a physical imprint it's not that we have to put wax on our heads and have a seal pressed into it, it is not that the seal being sealed by god means that we belong to to god we we, we are his possession later in the book of revelation uh, we'll see that some have the mark of the beast and in the same way it's nothing physical You don't have to worry about taking the mark of the beast in a physical way but you do have to worry about taking the mark of the beast in the sense of selling your soul to the evil one and having him as your master that is the thing to be concerned with it's ironic the dispensationalists and getting weird about all of these literal interpretations of the text miss the point altogether You should not be busy warning people about not taking on this new payment system that Visa has come up with, but rather they should be warning people saying, do not sell your soul to the evil one, but trust in Christ alone. What a terrible mistake they have made. Uh, These locusts cannot touch God's people, but only the idolaters who have, not the seal of God, but the mark of the beast. Um, The truth is this and this is true for every human being on the planet, you are not free. No one is free in an absolute sense. You are in bondage to someone. You either belong to Christ, having been sealed by him, or you belong to the evil one bearing his mark these locusts, who represent demons, were allowed to torment them, those not sealed by God, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it, when it stings someone. Uh, notice again that these are limited. These are permitted to torment for how long? Five months. This should not be taken literally. Numbers are symbolic in this book. The point seems to be that not only are the locusts restrained from harming God's people, but they are restrained also in regard to the harm that they can do even to the idolater. There is mercy here, isn't there? God restrains the torment that they are allowed to pour out upon the the idolatrous people, those who belong to Satan. They are also restrained in that they are not allowed to kill those whom they torment. This should remind us a bit of what was said about Job, too. He was allowed to be touched, but not ultimately killed. Their their torment is described as the sting of a scorpion. Has anyone been stung by a scorpion before? I I never have. You have? I don't know what that's like exactly, but it doesn't sound pleasant. I've been stung by a bee. I don't like that either. But the sting of a scorpion sounds worse. And, of course, there is symbolism here that we're to pay attention to. Um, Scorpions would often... Uh, in the scriptures would from time to time be allowed to sting the idolater. Uh, It seems to me that what is portrayed here in Revelation is a depiction of what Christ said in Luke 10, 18 through 20. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There, Christ seemed to be saying that uh, you, as my people, will have victory over the evil one and will not be hurt by them. I talked to somebody this last week who was still, um, I say still because I remember her being into this long ago, uh, but was still into deliverance type ministries. Do you know what I mean by deliverance type ministries? These ministries that go around and insist that it is possible for Christians to be. Severely tormented and perhaps even possessed by the demonic. And that in order to be a real spirit-filled Christian who is thriving, you must be delivered from all of these, uh, these, um, these spirits who latched on to you prior to your life in Christ and never let go. What a load of garbage that is. We have victory in Christ. We have everything that we need. We have the Holy Spirit. We have been freed from all of that. The moment we believe... The moment we believe, if there's something hanging you up as a Christian, it's not because you need spiritual deliverance, but it's because you need to repent more thoroughly than you have and turn to Christ and walk with Him. You know, it's because you need something else, more sanctification, perhaps, or it might be that you need to question your faith and say, "Am I a child of God? I don't know." Those are possibilities, but this idea that you are a child of God, bearing His seal, His mark, and yet you still belong somehow to the evil one is nonsense. It's nonsense. Such is the torment of these locusts that those affected by them in those days will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Uh, the futurist and the hyper-literalist thinks that this is a literal description of literal creatures who are literally sting, with a sting like that of a scorpion, and that the literal and physical pain will drive men mad to the point of desiring death. If you read their books, this is the direction they tend towards. This method of interpretation is not in step with the method of interpretation demanded elsewhere in the book of Revelation. The book everywhere communicates truth by way of symbol. The torment of the locust sting is not literal and physical but spiritual and psychological. The interpretation is this interpretation is in keeping with the symbolism of the rest of the book. The point is this, this is how the evil one rewards those who belong to him notice that he is pleased to sting not the people of God but his own people I'm sure he would like to sting the people of God but he is not permitted to do so but he is pleased to sting not the people of God but his own people those who belong to him he torments he is glad to remove all joy and peace as he overwhelms them with all manner of spiritual tor- torment to the point that they despair of life and even long for death. Why do these not go ahead and commit suicide? Some do go that far, we know, under, being under spiritual torment. But I wonder if it is not this sense of um, the judgment of God being waiting for them on the other side. I, I do not know. But here we see that the torment of the evil one Make some even despair of life and to say, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. A child of God, one sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, cannot be stung by the full power of the locust sting. But I cannot help but wonder if Christians do not taste some of this. If they do not taste what it is like to live under these torments for a time and in a limited way when they turn from Christ to walk in sin for a time, what they do is they begin to grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which they have been sealed. And I cannot help but wonder if Christians do not get a small taste of what it is like to live under this spiritual torment as the Holy Spirit of God is sealed within them. Do not take my words here too far, right? As if I'm tending that direction to say that the evil one has some sort of authority over the Christian. I do not think that. But, but I do know this, that when the Christian sins and does so willingly and in an unrepentant way, when the Spirit of God is grieved within us, you know and I know what it is like to begin to lose the joy that I once had and the peace of the spirit that we once had as God's people. Some of you know what it is like to belong to the evil one and to be t- tormented by him to the point of despairing of life and longing for death. You, you, you know it because you were there prior to coming to Christ. I'm your pastor. I know that you know it. The thing that kept you from suicide was perhaps the fearful expectation of judgment. But you know what it is like to live for the evil one and, and to just have a, a heart and soul that is dead and desiring death. Praise God that he has delivered us from these things. But some of you who belong to Christ have walked in sin and in so doing grieve the Holy Spirit so that you know something of the torturous existence experienced by those who do not have the Holy Spirit. I think this is a relatively common Christian experience, to have the Spirit grieved within us and to lose the joy of life that we once had for a time and to... Uh, experience um, the pain of sin's consequence even upon our own lives as, as Christians. The point is this, walk with Christ. Walk with Christ. Turn from your sins and believe in Him. Confess Him as Lord for His yoke is easy and His burden is light. In Him is found joy and peace and much comfort. To belong to the evil one will bring only everlasting torment to your soul. I want you to notice the description of these locusts, and I won't spend much time on this in Revelation 9, 7 through 10. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Are you engaging your imaginations again? In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Some hyper-literalistic, dispensational futurists. I think I have found the label that I'll slap on them now. This works, doesn't it? Some hyper-literalistic, dispensational futurists think that John must have been shown a vision of modern attack helicopters, right? And that he did his best to describe what he saw. Um, And I will admit that I can see how this passage would get their imaginations going, I can understand how they would come to this conclusion, but it's given their presuppositions that they come to that conclusion. They assume that the vision shown to John um, functions like video footage, as it were, of historical events shown ahead of time to him. Uh, But as I have said before, their presuppositions are faulty. I, I will not spend more time on that. But you can see how their imaginations would get going with the description of these locusts, right? What John saw was an Apache attack helicopter, clearly, you know, horses prepared for battle, breastplate of iron, faces like the face of men. I'm kind of losing them at this point. I I don't know how a helicopter has the face like a face of a man, unless you picture the ones in the Vietnam era that had the teeth kind of painted on the front of them, right? And the hair like the hair of a woman, maybe the props and the stings coming out of the tails. Every helicopter I've seen has the missiles coming out of, um, I don't know, somewhere in the front or from the little miniature wings, whatever those things are called. I, I, I... Quite honestly, when I first read this text, I don't picture helicopter, but I I picture very strange and terrifying creatures, you know. Not literal locusts, for sure, but strange and terrifying creatures. I think it is far better to understand that what John saw had symbolic significance, and then it draws upon key Old Testament texts. This should be our consistent method of interpretation. He's not seeing a vision of something that will one day happen, but he's seeing a vision that describes how things are in this church age, and he's describing it with symbolism that is found in the Old Testament. For the sake of time, I will not read these passages, but we should go to Joel chapters 1 and 2. Joel chapters 1 and 2 and Jeremiah chapter 51 to see uh, where this imagery is being primarily drawn from here in the book of Revelation it is clear that he struggled to describe what he saw. He said, in appearance, the locusts were like, there was nothing on earth that he could really use to describe what they were. They are like this and they are like that. I mean, these are terrifying creatures. They are ferocious creatures that John saw in this vision. And I think the way that the creatures are described underscores a few things. One, they are very powerful. Two, they are rational beings. I think that when we hear that they had the face, like the face of a a human being, a a man, you know, elsewhere in the book of Revelation when that is mentioned, it's highlighting the fact that these aren't just dumb insects, but these are rational creatures who have power. They're wearing crowns upon their head. They have the hair of women, right, uh, on their heads. And they are terrifying beings who possess authority to destroy. The imagery all points in that direction and that they will be used by God to pour out judgment upon idolaters. When we take the Old Testament text into consideration, this is the conclusion that we should come to. Now, does it bring comfort to your soul when I tell you that these are not literal creatures? Um, You're shaking your head yes, and I expected that you would. Uh, It does help us sleep a little bit better at night to to think that, okay, it's not that someday creatures like this are going to be in our living room, right? That's comforting. Um, But at the same time i'm also hoping that it brings no comfort at all to you but that you realize that the terrifying symbolism here the troubling symbolism here is meant to shock us and to awaken us from our sleepy spiritual slumber and make us realize that there are that there is a spiritual realm and there are beings fallen angels demons who have the kind of power and the kind of ferocity that is here symbolized by this Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? Take comfort in the fact that yes, a creature like this, it's not real in a literal sense, but, the, but the, the symbolism does point to something real, something powerful, something ferocious that we should indeed run from. We should run from the evil one into Christ. That is the point of it all. Um, I do hope that you can see how this message would have been important for the early church to hear even in 90 AD here they are living in a world much like ours actually much sin in the world persecution wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and here they are as Christians trying to make sense of it all what is this all about where is this coming from is God in control is he not are we just Helpless here in this situation. Where should, we, uh, where should we pledge our allegiance, right? Should we sell out and bow down to, to Rome and to Caesar so that we might spare our lives? These are the kinds of questions that Christians living in the early church were struggling with. And some of them were faced with death. Their decision meant life or death. And yet here God gives to us through John the Apostle this vision that reminds us it is only right that we stay true to Christ. The enemy himself he will only devour, but Christ rewards those who diligently seek him with life eternal. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this passage of scripture. Uh, Indeed, it it does engage the imagination. It seems very strange at first when we read it, Lord. Um, But I do pray that you would give us the ability to interpret the scriptures consistently and well according to your word. Uh, Lord, and once we have interpreted them, help us to apply them. And I do pray for that, Lord, that we as Christians would be very much aware of uh, the devices of the evil one. We rejoice in the fact that the evil one has been bound and is restrained and is under your sovereign authority. With with that information in our minds, it brings great comfort to our hearts, Lord. But also, would you help us to see that he is not completely inactive. He is not uh, completely restrained so that he is inactive in this world but he is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour lord make us mindful of these things as christians lord may we walk with you more faithfully and turn from all evil lord for those who do not know christ i pray that you would bring them to their senses that they would see that there is a spiritual battle that rages around them and that they belong either to this evil one or to christ Lord, free them from their sins and draw them to yourself, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those Christians who are struggling with sin, maybe quite deeply, give them victory, we pray. Sanctify them more and more to the glory of your name. These things we say in Christ's name. Amen.